Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 this morning as we wrap up the series this from this fall, as we've been looking at what does the Bible say about a variety of different difficult subjects and difficult issues. It's been a um, good journey. I've been really encouraged by the conversations that have gone on inside this church and conversations in our community groups as we as a body have wrestled with what does it mean to want to understand Scripture, but also to engage people and to talk with people about these issues and to show people love as Christ has shown love to us. Here this morning, what we're going to be looking at is we're going to be taking this idea and just pressing it a bit further, kind of summarizing with where we've been over the last several weeks this fall and looking at, well, what does this mean for us now? How do we engage? And this fall, this has probably been one of the most frequent probably the most frequent areas of conversation, probably the most frequent area of tension within our community groups, has been the idea of how do we engage people on these issues? We know we're supposed to engage people on these issues, but to what extent are we supposed to do that? Like, what extent, yeah, we're supposed to talk with people, but, but how far does that go, and, and what does this type of relationship look like? And we are going to be sitting in the middle of that tension here this morning. Several weeks ago, when I preached on the issue of what does the Bible say about homosexuality, I, I committed, at the end, I gave five commitments that we have as a church to those who are struggling with same-sex attraction. Actually, there are five commitments that we as a church have to anybody who is struggling, but it was focused on that issue. The five commitments that I gave were, one, that we offer welcome as a church, that regardless of who you are, regardless of the lifestyle that you live, you will be welcomed here. And welcome into our church community. Secondly, so we have a commitment of friendship. Not only will you be welcomed here, but you will be invited into relationship and invited into community um, as we seek to encourage and support one another and seek to follow Jesus Christ. The third thing was is that there was welcome friendship. Thirdly was truth. Is that as a church, we unashamedly believe in the Bible. We believe in the truth of God's word and the hope and joy and peace that comes through it and through a relationship with God. Fourth was gospel. Welcome to friendship, truth. Fourthly was the gospel. That we are each people who need the gospel, not just one time long ago when we committed our life to Christ, but we need the gospel every day. And we need you to tell it to us, and we need to tell it to you. And we need to encourage one another in these truths. And number five was welcome, friendship, truth, gospel. And the fifth one was hope. That we live in the hope of the day when Christ will redeem and restore all things. And the brokenness and the pain of this life will be no more. Now, we've touched on those issues, um, those same commitments in other areas that we've addressed this fall. But of those five, welcome, friendship, truth, gospel, and hope, which one do you think has generated the most discussion? It's friendship. It's friendship. And the idea of saying, yes, we need to welcome people who are different than us into our midst. Yes, they need the truth. Yes, we both need the gospel. Yes, we stand the hope of Jesus, but... Oh, friendship. What, I don't know about this one. I mean, doesn't Scripture say those of you, you know, you shouldn't be friends with the world? Doesn't Scripture say that? Well, how, what does this mean? What does this mean to actually have someone over to my house for dinner? Well, this is the, issue, the one that we are going to focus on here today. And as I mentioned, if this issue makes you uncomfortable, you'll probably be uncomfortable for the, next, um, for the rest of our time together this morning. Just as a disclaimer, we are looking at here um, 1 Corinthians chapter 9, where the Apostle Paul is addressing 
his philosophy of ministry, that is, how he seeks to live as a follower of Christ and how he seeks to engage people on difficult issues, on controversial issues, on immoral issues, how he seeks to bring the love of Christ to them. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, we're looking at verses 19 to 23, Paul writes, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being, my, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means possible I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessing. Let's pray for God's blessing on his word. Heavenly Father, we do pray that your spirit would give us insight into this truth, that you would apply it to our hearts, or that we would see the identity that we have in Christ and the freedom that that gives us to love this world, to love other people, and to become like them for the sake of the gospel. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to share with you a story that Philip Yancey writes in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace. And this book is probably the first book that I read that not only explained to me the doctrines of grace, but actually demonstrated what grace looks like when it's lived out in somebody's life. How do you actually live in grace and let the grace of God flow through you? And in this chapter, he is addressing his friendship with a person by the name of Mel White. Mel White was a very prominent national evangelical church leader um, who uh, came out as homosexual and started living, actively living a homosexual lifestyle. And Philip Yancey is describing what it looked like for him to be in the challenges and the tensions that he went through in being a friend with Tamel White and to continue to be a friend to him. And this is what Yancey writes. He says, Mel's odyssey confused and disturbed me. My wife and I stayed up many long nights with Mel discussing his future. Together, we went over all the relevant biblical passages and what they might mean. Mel kept asking why Christians highlighted any reference to same-sex unions while disregarding other behavior mentioned in the same passages. At Mel's request, I attended the first gay march on Washington, D.C. in 1987. I went not as a marcher or even as a journalist, which is Philip Yancey's career. I went not as a marcher or as a journalist, but as Mel's friend. He wanted me nearby as he sorted through some of the decisions bearing down on him. About 300,000 gay rights marchers had, marchers had gathered, and a, minor, and a minority clearly intended to shock the public wearing outfits that no evening newscast could televise. The October day was chilly. Gray clouds spit raindrops, raindrops on the columns parading through the Capitol. As I stood on the sidelines directly in front of the White House, I watched an angry confrontation. Mounted policemen had formed a protective circle around a small group of counter-demonstrators who, thanks to their orange posters featuring vivid illustrations of hellfire, had managed to attract most of the press photographers. Despite being outnumbered 15,000 to one, 
these Christian protesters were yelling inflammatory slogans at their gay marchers. Blank. Go home. Their leaders screamed into a microphone. And then the others took up the chants. When that got wearisome, they switched to shame on you for what you do chants. And between the chants, the leader delivered brimstone sermonettes about God reserving the hottest fires in hell for sodomites and for other perverts. AIDS, AIDS, it's coming your way was the last taunt in the, pro- in the protesters' repertoire, and the one shouted with the most fervor and ardor. We had just seen a sad procession of several hundred persons with AIDS, many in wheelchairs, with the gaunt bodies of concentration camp survivors. Listening to that chant, I could not fathom how anyone could wish that fate on another human being. Continues. The abrupt ironies in that scene of confrontation struck me. On the one side were Christians defending pure doctrine, and the other side were the sinners, many of whom openly admit to homosexual practice, yet the more orthodox group spewed out hate, and the other group sang of the love of Jesus. Paul, here in this passage, begins to address his approach for dealing with people who live radically different lifestyles than him, even immoral lifestyles than he does. And the first thing that I believe this text tells us and shows us is that as Christians, and I know that not all of us here are Christians, but as Christians, we must find our identity in Jesus Christ. Our identity must be found in Jesus Paul begins in verse 20 with a remarkable statement. He says, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jew, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. Now hold on a second. Who's writing this letter? This is the Apostle Paul. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth. And he says to the church in Corinth, To the Jew, I became as a Jew. Wait a second. This is Paul who was born from the tribe of Benjamin. He was from the tribe that had the first king of Israel. He was one who was circumcised on the eighth day, and according to Jewish customs, he was raised in a good Jewish family. Not only that, but when he grew up, he became he studied under the theologian Gamaliel, the, the most respected one in the land. He was a Pharisee of Pharisees. He knew the law. He knew what to do. He lived it consistently in his life. He was one who instructed other Jews on their Jewishness and how to be more Jewish and how to live more in accord with Jewish customs and Jewish traditions. And so Paul all of a sudden is saying, to the Jews, I became as a Jew? Paul, you are a Jew. What sense does this make? It's a little bit like Tom Brady saying to NFL quarterbacks, I became like an NFL quarterback. How much sense does that make? To a mother, to her children. To my children, I became like a mother. You are a mother. Like, that's who you are. What on earth is this going on? Now, if it was contrasted, if it was something like the Washington Redskins saying, to the NFL, we became like a winning football team. (laughs) You know, we might understand what he's meaning here, that you're becoming something that you're not, right? Go Skins. But Paul's point, he's saying, You know, to the Jews, I became as a Jew. What sense does this make? I mean, Paul, you are a Jew. I mean, you are a Jew's Jew. If anyone was a Jew, Paul, you're a Jew. And Paul says, no. No. I have a greater identity. 
a greater identity that is more than my Jewishness. There is a part of me that is more profound than the fact that I was the ideal Jew. That I was the, there was something more profound, more core to my being, more central to my interactions in this world than, than the fact that I was one who was raised with the perception that I was a part of the superior race. That I was one who was the bearer of the covenant promises that I alone among the people of the world was the chosen people of God. And of all the chosen people of God, I was better than any of them. And Paul says, no, there is something more profound than anything in this human life that I could boast about. And the thing that is more profound than any of these other identities is that I am found in Jesus Christ. That my identity is in Jesus Christ and anything in this life that would identify me, that I could boast about, anything in my life that people would attribute to me has been superseded by the truth and the reality that my identity is found in Jesus Christ and in him alone. Stop and think about this for a minute. Where do you find your worth and value? If you had to introduce yourself to a group of people, how would you introduce yourself? What things would you characterize as being essential to who you are? When you look back through your life and the challenges that you've gone through, what are you most proud of? What are the things that you are most known for? What are the things that, that define you and how you, how you perceive yourself? What gives you the most worth and value? And the challenge is that for every one of us, these things in life shape and form our understanding of who we are. They shape and form our identity. They shape and form how we perceive ourselves and how other people should perceive us and how other people should treat us. Indeed, probably most of the people in this room who work on base have taken classes on how you're to present yourself and how you're to act and how you're to conduct yourself and for a person of your stature and your achievement level and where you're going and your rank and the type of person that you are. They're saying, this is who you are, and if this is who you are, this is how you need to act, this is how you need to behave, this is what you need to do because this is your identity. You know, I know for some of you, maybe the opposite is true that your life actually hasn't been filled with much success at all. And that your life has actually been, that you feel more of um, a giant failure. That your life hasn't gone well, that you've made stupid decisions, that you've made sinful decisions. You feel like you're a failure as a parent. You feel like you're a failure in your career. You feel like you're a disappointment to your own parents. You feel like you're a disappointment, you're a failure as a spouse. And you look at your life and you say, you know what, most things in my life haven't gone well. I'm not anything that I wanted to be. And yet the question still remains, where are you finding your identity? And one way to think through that is to say, what would make you happy? And for a lot of people in the midst of challenges like that, say things like that, oh, if only my spouse would love me. If only my kids would turn out right. If only I could get into a decent paying job that I could support my family from. If only these things would happen, then, then my life would mean something. Then I would have arrived. But you see, friends, the good news of the gospel is that what Jesus Christ has done is that you have a radical new identity. A radical new identity that's not bound in who you are, where you're from, what you do, what you have done, or what you don't do. But you have a radical new identity that is bound in Jesus Christ. That as one who is in Jesus Christ, you, who were a person who was created in the image of God, 
with inherent worth and value and dignity. Yet that becoming corrupted by your own sinfulness. You, we, who are strangers to God, foreigners to His promise. Indeed, Scripture says that we were enemies of God with no hope of salvation except the grace of God. And through Jesus Christ, He has taken you who were far off and He has made you near. You who are enemies, He has made the children in His own household. You who are covered in shame and guilt, God has removed and He has clothed you with the beauty and righteousness of Jesus Christ. And this is now who you are in Jesus Christ. You see, this frees us from both self-righteousness and from self-condemnation. It frees us both from arrogance and judgmentalism. Because if you find your identity in anything outside of Jesus Christ, necessarily it will lead you to either self-righteousness or self-condemnation. Take for, example, take for example, let's say I find my identity in being a good husband. What does that mean? Is that I want my wife to respect me and to love me and to approve of me. I want my, my kids to think that my, I treat my wife well. I want other people to regard me as a good husband. But what happens if that becomes part of my identity? Should Scripture call me to do those things? Yes, absolutely. But here's what happens is that if that becomes my identity, that puts a bondage upon me that actually inhibits me from being a good husband because all of a sudden, if someone criticizes me, you know, let's say I get criticized about, you know, that, or there's a critique on me, maybe from my spouse, there's a critique on me about something in my life. I'm going to respond with either self-righteousness or self-condemnation. Self-righteousness, how can you say that about me? I, I mean, where, where do you get that from? I mean, how can you really think that I would be the type of person that would do that type of thing? I mean, don't you know all the ways that I love you? All the ways that I sacrifice for you? Don't you know all the things that I do in my house? I'm not the type of person. Your criticism doesn't stand. And let's just remember that in our relationship, I'm here and you're here. Because I'm a good husband and you need to appreciate me as such. Or it goes the other direction. Maybe she's right. Or maybe I just don't feel like fighting the battle. So it goes down the direction of self-condemnation. And self, well, hey, I'm just trying to do the best I can do. What can I say? Yeah, I'm not perfect. Let me go hide off and lick my wounds. Let me go mope for a while. I can't believe you said that to me. You know, I'm I'm just doing the best that I can. Woe is me. How could you say that to me? I'm such a victim. And what happens is that for each one of us, any time we find our identity in anything outside of Christ... If you find it in being a good parent, that your kids are going to turn out right. If you find it in your success or your career, all of these things are going to either lead you to self-righteousness or to self-condemnation. But the gospel frees you and frees us from the bondage of things that once drove us. It frees us from even good things. It actually frees me to be a good husband. Because you see what happens is that if my identity is in Christ, what happens is that if there's a critique on my husbandliness, if there's a critique on that, now I can actually evaluate what it is because I don't need that critique to be false because that's not, who I, that's not what defines me. What defines me is that I'm in Jesus Christ. And because I'm in Christ, that allows me to look at it and say, actually, no, I'm not a perfect husband. Actually, I'm far from it. What is the truth here? How do I actually seek to be a better husband? How do I actually seek to show love and grace and respect? Where do I need to ask for forgiveness? Where do I need to repent? 
And I'm free to do that because I'm not bound by needing people's approval in this perspective that my identity is that I'm a good husband. Take it for the issue of race. We'll shift over to this direction. What happens there is that if you have a lot of people in the majority culture, a lot of white people, when it comes to the issue of race and racial tensions that we talked about two weeks ago, you know, a lot of people in our white people in our culture will say something like this. You know what? I have tried to pe- treat I have tried to treat every minority with respect and dignity just like I treat treat everybody else. And so the idea that I've done anything in my right li- that I've done anything in my life as being racist or, or supporting that is utterly false. In fact, I have been the victim of more racist remarks to me by minorities than I have ever considered giving to them. They need to be apologizing to me. And if your identity is bound in your race, all of a sudden you cannot hear that criticism. But if your identity is in Christ, it frees you to say, wait a second, maybe I'm actually not seeing something here. Maybe I actually don't have the full perspective. Maybe I can actually listen to my brothers and sisters and to to minorities and to people who aren't in the majority in this area of the world, people who aren't the majority, to actually understand the things that I've been doing that affect them. You see, our identity of Christ frees us, to, frees us in all these ways. And if we don't find our identity in Christ, it moves us either to arrogance and judgmentalism, self-righteousness and self-condemnation. But notice what happens to the Apostle Paul the, as he finds his identity in Christ, is that when we find our identity in Christ, it actually frees us and liberates us to identify with others. It, it liberates us even to accept people whom we once excluded. Notice what happens next in this passage, is that our identity in Christ frees us to identify with others. Paul writes, verse 19, he said, you know, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win the Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law that I might win those under the law. Verse 21, To those outside the law I became as one outside the law not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul is saying, listen, my identity in Christ has freed me to be all things to all people. It says, to the Jew, I became as a Jew. No, I'm actually not a Jew. Yeah, that's who I am outwardly, but who I am fundamentally is that I'm a Christian. My identity is bound in Jesus Christ. And so to the Jew, I became as a Jew. To those under the law, that is, to the religiously upright, to the straight and narrow, I became as one who was was straight and narrow. Now look at this next one. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law. Who are those outside the law? Those are the immoral. Those are the lawbreakers. Paul says, to those outside the law, to the immoral, I became as one who was immoral, as one outside the law, that I might win those outside the law. Then he says, to the weak, I became weak. That's a reference to those who have a weak conscience. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, so that by all means I might save some. Now, lest we get confused... Is Paul saying, is he advocating immorality for the sake of the gospel? By no means. He says in verse 21, he says, To those outside the law, to the immoral, I became as one who was immoral, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. He makes the point clear. Paul is saying this. He says, listen, we're participating in something 
would compromise the gospel or would lead me to sin, I abstain. And so must we. But where abstaining improperly distances me from somebody else, I participate. And dare I say, so should we. You see, Paul was willing to go to extreme lengths to meet people. Now, Paul never was willing to compromise the gospel or the truth of God's word. But to everything else, he would flex greatly. I mean, consider Timothy. He's like the bravest man in Scripture. He's half Jew. His father was a Greek. Paul wanted to take him on his missionary journeys, but he knew that he was going to be meeting Jews and Paul was raised in a, and Timothy was raised in a Greek home, and he wasn't circumcised. So he says, Timothy, I want to take you, but brother, you got to get circumcised. He's a grown man. Timothy says, okay, let's do it. He became all things to all people. Why? Because from perspective, he's saying, listen, a week of my pain is worth saving someone from an eternity of their pain. Now, here's oftentimes where an objection comes up, and the challenge in the midst of this discussion um, in a community such as ours at Cornerstone, is that you say, okay, well, it's one thing for Timothy to do that. I mean, he's an adult, right? And it's another thing for the apostle Paul to become all things to all people. But what does that look like for me? I mean, I've got a family. I've got kids. I mean, how do I, what does this mean to become friends with somebody and actually invite them to our house for dinner? I mean, I've got kids in my house, and, and what are they going to think if we invite somebody who's living in an immoral lifestyle into our home? How do we, how do we deal with that? What's the te- what, do we do, what do we do with that? How do we apply these principles? I'll just give two brief, princi- two brief points on this. Number one is there is a huge difference between intentionally loving somebody and passively accommodating. There's a huge difference between saying that the love of Christ compels us to move towards other people, between that and saying, well, we're just going to do what everyone else is doing because we don't really want to be known as Christians. We just want to be just like everybody else. There's a huge difference between intentionally loving and passively, passively accommodating. Second thing is this, is that light shines in the darkness. Light shines in darkness. Truth and grace shine in darkness. Truth, grace, and love is beautiful. And it is seen as more beautiful when it is contrasted with things that are not. And as families, our lives should be a contrast. Our marriages, our homes, our lives as Christians should be a contrast to those who are intentionally living contrary to God's word. And let me also say that as as parents... One of the number one things that our children need to see and what they need to see in you is that they need to see that your identity is built on Jesus Christ. That your identity is not built on your religiosity. It's not built on are you, you know, how good of a Christian you are. It's not built on the success of your kids leaving your home. But that your identity is built on Jesus Christ and on him alone and that the faith that you profess to believe is credible and they can see it. And they see it in contrast to other people who they know and in whom, the, in whom they're relationship with. Well, let me give a couple examples of this. How do we identify with others? How do we become like, how do we do what Paul did and become all things to all people that by all means I might save some? We could apply this in the area of immigration or race, such as the huge need for understand, the, un, the need to grow an understanding of the majority race to understand how offensive the majority culture often is to minority cultures without knowing it.
But we're going to focus instead of on that, which is really fascinating and helpful. Instead, we're going to focus on, I think, the area of biggest challenge in terms of what Paul says. And the area of biggest challenge is identifying with those who are in immorality. When Paul says, to those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, of, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the immoral, I became like the immoral. That is the area that's our biggest challenge. Now, I'm going to give you several examples. Philip Yancey, responding to letters for what he wrote in this book, um, wrote this in terms of how do you, how could he still be friends with a guy like Mel White? He says, on an issue like this, I try to start with what I'm absolutely sure of and work outwards. I am sure of what my own attitude should be towards gays and lesbians. I should show love and grace. As one person told me, Christians get very angry towards other Christians who sin differently than they do. Christians get very angry towards other Christians who sin differently than they do. After all, Jesus had much to say about greed, hypocrisy, pride, and lust, sins that I struggle with, but he didn't mention homosexuality. Yes, Jesus affirmed the heteronormativity of marriage. But what he spoke the most about were greed, hypocrisy, pride, and lust. And Yancey continues, he says, After I wrote about my friendship with Mel White, I received a number of letters condemning me for continuing the friendship. How can you possibly remain friends with such a sinner? The letter writers demanded. I thought long and hard about that question, and I've come up with several answers which I believe to be biblical. The most, the most succinct answer, though, is another question, which is this. How can Mel White possibly remain friends with a sinner like me? The only hope for any of us regardless of our particular sins, lies in a, in a ruthless trust in a God who inexplicably loves sinners, including those who sin differently than we do. Let me give another example. Same area. A friend of ours, when we were living in St. Louis, a lady who was in her mid-30s, she was a professional counselor. She was married, or she was not married, but she very much wanted to be married. And our church hosted a ministry for people struggling with sexual brokenness and finding healing in the gospel. And our friend led a group of women and counseled a group of women. There were about 10 of them, all of whom were coming, who had been living um, same-sex lifestyles and were seeking to be, seeking to follow Christ and to live um, in accord with Scripture and seeking to find grace and healing for the brokenness in their life. And so they had been meeting together for several, actually several months at this point. And one night they said, you know what, we've been, you know, as we've been meeting together, God has really just done some remarkable things in our group and we've been through a lot together. How about next week, instead of having our group together, what we're going to do is we're all going to go out to dinner together. So they did. They went to a restaurant called Chewy's, which is a Mexican restaurant in St. Louis. If you're ever there, it's a fantastic restaurant. Um, and they went to Chewy's on a Friday night, about six o'clock. And as they showed up at Chewy's, all of the people in this group came to the restaurant. Her friend came there as well. And as they're standing there, she said she began to notice everyone start to look at them. Because of the women that she was with, with were the caricature of lesbian stereotypes. With the haircut, with the clothing, coming in on motorcycles, take your pick, of whatever stereotype, all of them applied. 
And she says, as we were standing there, I started to notice how the crowd and other people waiting would distance themselves from us. And I started to notice how parents would take their kids the long way to the bathroom so they wouldn't have to walk past us as we were there. And so then as the time progressed, we finally, were, we finally sat down at our table, and I was sitting there, and we were having a great conversation. I began to look, at the, look around the room and began to realize that I was being identified as a woman who was attracted to other women. And she said, then I looked across the restaurant, and I saw an old boyfriend of mine. And he looked across at the restaurant at me, and his eyeballs were bugging out of his head. And he's sitting there thinking, is it possible that the girl that I used to date, I mean, is she really now a, I mean, I mean could, did, I do, did I do that? Could, 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 is this what happens? Is she really with, what, one, one, is she one of them? Did, did that happen? What, what's going on here? Who is this? I thought I knew her. I thought she loved Jesus. And she said as she started to realize this, that there was inside of her this crisis of identity that she realized that she was being one who was being identified with people who struggle with same-sex attraction. And she said, there was part of me that she said, every ounce and fiber of my being wanted to shout out, you need to understand, I'm not one of them. I'm not like them. I don't have the issues that these people have. Actually, what I'm doing, I'm a counselor. And so what I'm doing is I'm trying to help these people actually become more like me, is what I'm doing here. And she said, as soon as she had that thought, the Holy Spirit struck her. And the Holy Spirit struck her and said, said, no, your identity is not in your sexual orientation. Your identity is found in Jesus Christ. Your identity is not that you're a heterosexual single woman. Your identity is that Jesus Christ has purchased you with his blood and has made you a member of his own household. That your identity is not found in your appearances. Your identity is not found in what other people think. Your identity is not found in what potential suitors may or may not think of you. Your identity is found in Jesus Christ and in him alone. To those who struggled with same-sex attraction, she became like one who struggled with same-sex attraction. And do you know what she said after she realized this and she confessed her sin to the Lord at the table there? She said, you know what happened? She said, we had a great night. And she said, we, I had so much fun going out with those girls. I had so much fun with my friends. Hmm. Not my counselees. I was having so much fun with my friends. Third example. There was a lady who um, had come to Cornerstone who had a lot of challenges in her life. Um, a lot of things were messed up in a lot of areas and a lot of brokenness in a lot of different realms. And there were several families in this church who entered in with her, who sought to love her, who entered in really deep and really messy ways with her for quite a long time. And, you know, there was Cornerstone and some other agencies and what have you who were involved. And after a while, she eventually went to another church. Um, And I was meeting with her as she was discussing this with me. And she said, you know what? She said, every Christian I've interacted with has always made me feel like a project. She said, every church that I've gone to has always made me feel like a project. And she goes, except for, and she names a lady in our church. And she goes, she never made me feel like a project. She always made me feel like her friend. And does that not sound strangely similar to one who became man, yet never sinned? To one who was not afraid of being identified as a glutton or called a drunkard, even though he wasn't. 
who is one who is not afraid to be crucified as a sinner so that he could identify with sinners like me. And so that I might be set free from the bondage of finding my identity in anything else and that I might find my identity in Jesus Christ and in him alone. As a church, one of our core values is that we are an incarnate community. That just as God became incarnate, became man in the person of Jesus Christ, that he manifested himself, becoming like us, humbling himself, taking the form of a servant, and being found in human likeness. He humbled himself to the point of death, even death on the cross. And we say that as a community, that we are an incarnate community, that our identity is found in Christ and found in him alone. And what that means is that we are striving as a community, as individual Christians and as a church, to manifest Christ in this time and in this place and in this community. That as a church, our mission is not to propagate some form of worship or some form of some branch of the church. Our mission is to be like Jesus and to manifest the grace and love of God as he has done so for us and to show the love of Christ that he has loved us with. How do we reach people? How do we engage people on these difficult issues? Ultimately, that's a question that each one of us needs to answer. But let me suggest that, like the Apostle Paul, who was like Jesus, that like the Apostle Paul, for us, it needs to begin with a by-all-means-possible attitude from a group of Christians who are finding their identity not in the things of this world, but are finding their identity in Jesus Christ and in him alone. Do you see how the gospel frees us to love our community? Because if you are one, if you build your identity mainly on your, on your class, I, didn't, I wasn't a person of much income when I was, didn't grow up in a, a wealthy family, but now I've, I've really become somebody. If you find your identity in your class, your race, your culture, your gender, your sexual orientation, your moral standards, if you find your identity in your spiritual disciplines, you will necessarily disdain anyone who lacks what you consider to be the cornerstone of your significance. You will become angry at others who sin differently than you do. But when your identity is in Jesus Christ, there is a freedom, and it frees you to love genuinely, to respect, and even to enjoy people who sin differently than you, people who are totally different than you, of all kinds of different people groups. And yes, even to go a step further and to boldly identify with them. You see, brothers and sisters, our identity in Christ frees us to identify with others so that by all means possible, we might win some for Christ. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we come before you. And God, I am so thankful that when you looked down from heaven at us, you just weren't disgusted. You didn't say, ooh, yuck, what is that? And you totally could have. Nor did you just wipe us out in your judgment, which you could have done that too, rightfully. Nor did you just say, hey, when you get your act straight, then I'll talk to you. But no, you, the light of the world, came into the darkness. 
you who were perfectly sinless became identified with sinners. You who were completely other became completely like us to set us free from bondage, to set us free from the false things in this world that we seek to find our identity in, to set us free because our identity is found in you. Father, I pray for my brothers and sisters and my friends here today who are trying to find their identity in something else, who are trying to find their source of worth and significance, trying to find their soul satisfaction in something else. Lord, for some people here, it's in another relationship. Oh, if only this person would like me and love me. Father, for some of us here, it's like, if only I could get married to the right person. Lord, for others of us, it's only if, if only, you know, if my children would turn out right. For others of us, it's only if I could just have a good career, if my parents would just approve me. Lord, so many things that we run to, that we think will satisfy us. And Lord, they just leave us more empty. For you alone satisfy. You alone are our hope. You alone are the one source of joy, and in you alone should we identify. Lord, draw us to ourselves, to yourself, that though, yes, it is true that we are now in you through Jesus Christ, Lord, may our identity be lived as one who was found in you, in Jesus Christ, who is our Lord and Savior. It's in your name we pray. Amen.